0: Chapter four of the de Bercy affair by Gordon Holmes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four the new life. No sooner did Rupert begin to consider ways and means of adopting Winter's suggestion than he encountered difficulties. Pack a kit-bag, jump into a cab, and bury yourself in some seaside town might be the best counsel, but it was administered in tabloid form. When analyzed, the ingredients became formidable. For instance, the chief inspector had apparently not allowed for the fact that a man in Osborne Station would certainly carry his name or initials on his clothing, linen, and portmanteau, and on every article in his dressing-case. Despite his other troubles, which were real enough to a man who loathed publicity, Rupert found himself smiling in perplexity when he endeavoured to plan some means of hoodwinking Jenkins. Moreover, he could not help feeling that his identity would be proclaimed instantly when a sharp-eyed hotel valet or inquisitive chambermaid examined his belongings. He was sure that some of the newspapers would unearth a better portrait of himself than the libelous snapshot reproduced that day, in which event no very acute intelligence would be needed to connect Osborne, or R.G.O., with the half-tone picture. Of course he could buy ready-made apparel, but the notion was displeasing. Ultimately he abandoned the task and summoned Jenkins. Jenkins was one of those admirable servants, bred to perfection in London only, worthy of a coat of arms with the blazoned motto, "'Leave it to me.' His sallow, almost ascetic face, brightened under the trust reposed in him. "'It is now half-past ten, sir,' he said. "'Will it meet your convenience if I have everything ready by two o'clock?' "'I suppose so,' said his master ruefully. "'What station shall I bring your luggage to, sir?' "'Oh, any station. Let me see. Say, Waterloo, Main Line.' "'And you will be absent ten days or thereabouts, sir?' That is the proposition as it stands now. Very well, sir. I shall want some money, not more than twenty pounds. Rupert opened a door leading to the library. He rented a two-story maisonette in Mayfair, with the drawing-room, dining-room, library, billiard-room and domestic offices grouped round the hall, while the upper floor was given over to bedrooms and dressing-rooms. His secretary was not arrived as yet but he had already glanced through a pile of letters with the practiced eye of one who receives daily a large and varied correspondence. He wrote a cheque for a hundred pounds, and stuffed the book into a breast-pocket. "'There,' he said to Jenkins, "'cash that. Buy what you want, and bring me the balance in five-pound notes.' "'Yes, sir, but will you please remember to pack the clothes you are now wearing into a parcel, and post them to me this evening?' By gad, Jenkins, I should have forgotten that my name is stitched onto the back of the coat I am wearing. How will you manage about my other things? Rip off the tab, sir, and get you some new linen, unmarked. Good. But I may as well leave my cheque-book here. No, sir, take it with you. You may want it. If you do, the money will be of more importance than the name. Right again, Socrates. I wish I might take you along, too, but our Scotland Yard friend said, no, so you must remain and answer callers. I have sent away more than a dozen this morning, sir. Oh? Who were they? Newspaper gentlemen, sir, every one of them, though they tried various dodges to get in and have a word with you. If I were you, sir, I would drive openly in the motor to some big hotel and let your car remain outside while you slip out by another door.' "'Jenkins, you seem to be up to snuff in these matters.' "'Well, sir, I had a good training with Lord Dunningham. His lordship was a very free-and-easy sort of gentleman, and I never did meet his equal at slipping a writer. They gave it up at last, and went in for what they called substituted service.' A bell rang, and they heard a servant crossing the hall. "'That will be Miss Prout, sir,' said Jenkins. "'What shall I tell her?' "'Nothing.' Mr. Winter will see her in the morning. Now let us be off out of this before she comes in. Rupert was most unwilling to frame any subterfuge that might help to explain his absence to his secretary. She had been so manifestly distressed in his behalf the previous day that he decided to avoid her now, being anxious not to hurt her feelings by any display of reticence as to his movements. As soon as the library door closed behind the newcomer, he went to his dressing-room, and remained there until his automobile was in readiness. He was spoken to twice, and snapshotted three times while he ran down the steps and crossed the pavement. But he gave no heed to his tormentors, and his chauffeur, quick to appreciate the fact that a couple of taxicabs were following, ran into Hyde Park by the nearest gate, thus shaking off pursuit since vehicles licensed to ply for hire are not allowed to enter London's chief pleasure-ground. Yes, said Rupert to himself, winter is right. The solitary cliff and the deserted village for me during the next fortnight. But where are they to be found? England, with August approaching, is full to the brim. He decided to trust to chance, and therein lay the germ of complications which might well have given him pause, could he have peered into the future? Having successfully performed the trick of the cab-bilker, by leaving his motor outside a hotel, Rupert hurried away from the main stream of fashion, along several narrow streets, until his attention was caught by a tiny restaurant on which the day's eatables were scrawled in French. It was in Soho, an open-air market promised diversion, and he was wondering how Winkles tasted, extracted from their shells with a pin when some commotion arose at the end of an alley. A four-wheeled cab had wormed its way through a swarm of picturesque loafers and was drawn up close to the curb. Pavement and street were pululating with child life, and the appearance from the interior of the cab of a couple of strongly-built, square-shouldered men seemed to send an electric wave through adults and children alike. Instantly there was a rush, and Rupert was pinned in the crowd between a stout French woman and a young Italian who reeked of the kitchen. "'What is it, then?' he asked, addressing Madame in her own language. "'They are police agents, those men there,' she answered. "'Have they come to make an arrest?' "'But no, monsieur. Two miserables who call themselves anarchists have been sent back to France, and the police are taking their luggage.' "'A nice thing, chasing such scarecrows and letting that bad American who killed Mademoiselle de Bercy go free. Poor lady! I saw her many times. Ah, mon Dieu! How I wept when I read of her terrible end!' Rupert caught his breath. So he was judged and found guilty even in the gutter. "'Perhaps the police know that Monsieur Osborne did not kill her,' he managed to say in a muffled tone. "'Oh, la, la!' Cried the woman, He has money. C'est vilain, Osborne. The ironic phrase was pitiless. It denounced, condemned, explained. Rupert forced a laugh. Truly, money can do almost anything, he said. A detective came out of the passage laden with dilapidated packages. The woman smiled broadly, saying, My faith, they do not prosper, those anarchists. Rupert edged his way through the crowd. On the opposite side of the street the contents bills of the early editions of the evening newspapers glared at him. "'West End Murder! relative Sail from Jersey! Portrait Sketch of Osborne! Paris Life of Rose de Bercy!' The horror of it all suddenly stifled its finer impulses. From that hour Rupert squared his shoulders and meant to scowl at the jeering multitude." Probably because he was very rich, he cultivated simple tastes in the matter of food. At one o'clock he ate some fruit and a cake or two, drank a glass of milk, and noticed that the girl in the cashier's desk was actually looking at his own portrait sketch, when he tendered her a shilling. About half-past one he took a hansom to Waterloo Station, where he bought a map and railway guide at the bookstall, and soon decided that Tormouth on the coast of Dorset, offered some prospect of a quiet anchorage. So when Jenkins came with a couple of new leather bags, Rupert bought a third-class ticket. Travelling in a corridor compartment, he heard the Feldisham mansion's crime discussed twice during the afternoon. Once he was described as a real bad lot, one of them fellers who had too little to do and too much to do it on. When at Winchester these critics alighted, Their places were taken by a couple of young women, and the train had hardly started again before the prettier of the two called her companion's attention to a page in an illustrated paper. "'Poor thing! wasn't she a beauty?' she asked, pointing to a print of the Academy portrait of Mademoiselle de Bercy. "'You can never tell. Them photographs are so touched up,' was the reply. "'There's no touching up of Osborne, is there?' giggled the other. Looking at the motor-car photograph. No, indeed, he looks as if he had just done it, said the friend. A lumbering omnibus took him to Tormouth. At the Swan Hotel, he haggled about the terms and chose a room at ten shillings per diem instead of the plutocratic apartment first offered at twelve and six. In the register, he signed R. Glynn, London, and at once wrote to Winter he almost laughed when he found that Jenkins' address on the label was some street in north London where that excellent man's sister dwelt. He found that Tormouth possessed one great merit, an abundance of sea air. It was a quiet old place, a town of another century, cut off from the rush of modern life by the frenzied opposition to railways displayed by its local magnates fifty years earlier. Rupert could not have selected a better retreat. He dined, slept, ate three hearty meals next day, and slept again with a soundness that argued him free from care. But newspapers reached even Tormouth, and on the second morning after his arrival Osborne's bitter mood returned, when he read an account of Rose de Bercy's funeral. The crowds anticipated by winter were there. The reporters duly chronicled Rupert's absence, and there could be no gainsaying the eagerness of the press to drag in his name on the slightest pretext. But the arrows of outrageous fortune seemed to be less barbed when he found himself on a lonely path that led westward along the cliffs, and his eyes dwelt on the far-flung loveliness of a sapphire sea reflecting the tint of a turquoise sky. A pleasant breeze that just sufficed to chisel the surface of the water into tiny facets flowed lazily from the south. From the beach, some twenty feet or less beneath the low cliff, came the murmur of a listless tide. On the swelling uplands of Dorset shone glorious patches of gold and green, with here and there a hamlet or many-ricked farm, while in front, a mile away, the cliff climbed with a gentle curve to a fine headland that jutted out from the shore line like some great pier built by a genie for the caravels of giants. It was a morning to dispel shadows, and the cloud lifted from Rupert's heart under its cheery influence. He stopped to light a cigar, and from that moment Rupert's regeneration was complete. It is a shame to defile this wonderful atmosphere with tobacco smoke, he mused. So I must solve my conscience by burning incense to the spirit of the place. That sort of spirit is invariably of the female gender. Where is the lady? Invisible, of course. Without the least expectation of discovering either Fay or mortal on the yellow sands that spread their broad highway between sea and cliff, Rupert stepped off the path, onto the narrow strip of turf that separated it from the edge, and looked down at the beach. Greatly to his surprise a girl sat there, painting. She had rigged a big Japanese umbrella to shield herself and her easel from the sun. Its green-hued paper cover, gay with pink dragons and blue butterflies, brought a startling note of colour into the placid foreground. The girl, or a young woman, wore a very smart hat but her dress was a greyish-brown costume, sufficiently indeterminate in tint to conceal the stains of rough usage in climbing over rocks or forcing a way through rank vegetation. Indeed it was chosen in the first instance so that a dropped brush or a blob of paint would not show too vivid traces. And this was well, for some telepathic action caused the wearer to lift her eyes to the cliff the very instant after Rupert's figure broke the skyline above the long grasses nodding on the verge. The result was lamentable. She squeezed half a tube of crimson lake over her skirt in a movement of surprise at the apparition. She was annoyed and, of course, blamed the man. What do you want? she demanded. Why creep up in that stealthy fashion? I didn't, said Rupert. But you did this with a pout. While she scraped the paint off her dress with a palette-knife, I'm very sorry that you should have cause to think so. He said, "Will you allow me to explain as he stepped forward, lifting his hat, The girl cried a warning, but too late. A square yard of dry earth crumbled into dust beneath him, and he fell headlong. Luckily, the strata of shale and marl which formed the coastline at that point had been scooped by the sea into a concavity with a ledge which Rupert reached before he had dropped half-way. Some experience of alpine climbing had made him quick to decide how best to rectify a slip, and he endeavoured now to spring rather than roll downward to the beach, since he had a fleeting vision of a row of black rocks that guarded the foot of the treacherous cliff. he just managed to clear an ugly boulder that would have taken cruel toll of bruised skin, if no worse, had he struck it, but he landed on a smooth rock coated with seaweed exactly what next befell neither he nor the girl ever knew. He performed some wild gyration, and was brought up forcibly by the bamboo shaft of the umbrella, to which he found himself clinging in a sitting posture. His trousers were split across both knees, his coat was ripped open under the left arm, and he felt badly bruised. Nevertheless he looked up into the girl's frightened face, and laughed on which the fright vanished from her eyes, and she too laughed, with such ready merriment and display of white teeth, that Rupert laughed again. He picked himself up and stretched his arms slowly, for something had given him a tremendous thump in the ribs. "'Are you hurt?' cried the girl, anxiety again chasing the mirth from her expressive features. "'No,' he said, after a deep breath had convinced him that no bones were broken. I only wished to explain that your word, stealthy, was undeserved. I withdraw it, then. I saw you were a stranger, so it is my fault that you fell. I ought to have told you about that dangerous cliff, instead of pitching into you because you startled me. I can't agree with you there, smiled Rupert. We were both taken by surprise, but I might have known better than to stand so near the edge. Good job I was not a mile farther west. And he nodded in the direction of the distant headland. Oh please don't think of it or i shall dream tonight of somebody falling over the tor is that the tor he asked yes don't you know you are visiting tormouth i suppose i have been here since the day before yesterday but my local knowledge is nil well if i were you i should go home and change my clothes how did your coat get torn are you sure you are not injured he turned to survey the rock on which his feet had slipped Between it and the umbrella the top of a buried boulder showed through the deep sand, ever white and soft at high-water mark. "'I am inclined to believe that I butted into that fellow during the hurricane,' he said. Then, feeling that an excuse must be forthcoming, if he wished to hear more of this girl's voice, and look for a little while longer into her face, he threw a plaintive note into a request. "'Would you mind if I sat down for a minute or so?' he asked. I feel a bit shaken. After the briefest sort of rest I shall be off to the Swan." "'Sit down at once,' she said with ready sympathy. "'Here, take this,' and she made to give him the canvas chair from which she had risen at the first alarm. He dropped to the sand with suspicious ease. "'I shall be quite comfortable here,' he said. "'Please go on with your painting. I always find it soothing to watch an artist at work.' "'I must be going home now,' she answered. I obtain this effect only at a certain stage of tide, and early in the day. You see, the tor changes his appearance so rapidly when the sun travels round to the south. "'Do you live at Tormouth? he ventured to ask. "'Half a mile out.' "'Will you allow me to carry something for you? I find that I have broken two ribs—of your umbrella,' he added instantly, seeing that those radiant eyes of hers had turned on him with quick solicitude." Pity, she murmured, bamboo is so much harder to mend than bone. No, you will not carry anything. I think if you are staying at the Swan you will find a path up a little hollow in the cliff, about a hundred yards from here. Yes, and if you two are going in the opposite direction. Ah, well, he said, I am a useless person, it seems. Good-bye. May I fall at your feet again to-morrow?" THE ABSURD QUESTION BROUGHT HALF A SMILE TO HER LIPS. SHE BEGAN TO REPLY. WORSHIP SO HEADLONG. THEN SHE SAW THAT WHICH CAUSED HER FACE TO BLANCH. WHY, YOUR RIGHT HAND IS SMOTHERED IN BLOOD. SOMETHING HAS HAPPENED. HE GLANCED AT HIS HAND, WHICH A PEBBLE HAD CUT ON ONE OF THE KNUCKLES, AND HE VALIANTLY RESISTED THE TEMPTATION THAT PRESENTED ITSELF, AND STOOD UPRIGHT. IT'S A MERE SCRATCH, HE ASSURED HER. If I wash it in salt water, it will be healed before I reach Tormouth. Good-bye, mermaid. I believe you live in a cavern, out there, beneath the tor. Some day soon I shall swim out among the rocks and look for you. With that, he stooped to recover his hat, walked seaward to find a pool, and held his hand in the water until the wound was cauterized. Then he lit another cigar, and saw out of the tail of his eye that the girl was now on the top of the cliff at some distance to the west. I wonder who she is, he murmured, a lady, at any rate, and a very charming one. And the girl was saying, Who is he? A gentleman, I see. American? Something in the accent, perhaps? Or perhaps not. Americans don't come to torpid old Tormouth." End of chapter 4